it bothers me that I'm not able to talk about the things that happened to me like everyone else does. You know how some people will be like, oh my God, I had a really shitty day at work. That's fine. People get to complain about their lives. I don't get to talk about me being suicidal because people get uncomfortable with that. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, we're not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Why? Well, one of our main goals is to help more people in more places feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. And if you have been part of that as a guest or someone who listens or both, I really appreciate it. Now, if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And as I say every episode, check the show notes if you want to learn more about all kinds of other things, including our membership. And if you rate and or review the Suicide Noted podcast on Apple or Spotify, I think those are the only two platforms you can leave that kind of thing. It helps people find it. And of course, that is what we want. Finally, we are talking about suicide on this podcast. We don't hold back, so take that into account before you listen or as you listen. But I do hope you listen, because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Natalia. Natalia lives in England, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Natalia. So, you are in England? I am, yes. But you're not British. I'm not. No, I'm Brazilian. So this is interesting. You're not the first person I've spoken to who resides in England. I've had several of those conversations. You are, however, I think, the first Brazilian. But again, no longer living in Brazil. Yeah, I've been here eight years. Eight years. And you're, you look like you're maybe in your early 20s? Oh, no, I'm in my mid-30s. Okay, mid-30s. Here's what we know about you. Your name is Natalia, that you're from Brazil, that you reside somewhere in the, in the UK. Um, we yep. know that you've attempted suicide, but also it's worth noting that you have tattoos. I do, a few, yeah. Do you live alone? No, my husband's here. Does he know what we're talking about? No. Would he mind? Don't know, but he's not going to be listening. He's too occupied watching football stuff. Soccer. We call it soccer here. Yeah, soccer. Yeah. Brazilian guy in England. I mean, of course he's watching football. Yeah. What what team does he support? He supports Palmeiras. In Brazil. In Brazil. In England? He just watches it. It doesn't support any England team, yeah. I don't think. So why did the two of you end up there? Well, it's weird, actually. Um, we just decided we wanted to try something new. You could have moved to maybe Malaysia or Australia or Singapore. Why'd you go there? We, we could have. Well, that was before Brexit, right? So we wanted, okay, Europe, somewhere where we can go with an European passport, which we have, and that, you know, if we don't like it, we can move around. And then we thought, let's try England first, because we both speak English, and we don't have to learn, you know, Italian or French or German. Makes sense. So you're in England. What part? 
Yeah, we're in Surrey, so it's very close to London. Surrey, near London, England, of course, part of the United Kingdom. Yes. Um, that is not uh, Brazil, obviously, as per what we've just discussed, was not colonized by England. Nope. Not the right country. Most of Latin America was conquered, imperialized, colonized by Spain, but Brazil is one of the few countries, I'm giving a history lesson here. Yeah. Was not. Now, this is not about, this is not called colonization noted. It's not really my thing. I'm more about, for some bizarre reason, you could say, suicide. One of the reasons nobody else is. Not nobody, Natalia, but not many. Not many, definitely not many. How did you find it? I found it by typing suicide podcast, I think on Spotify. Mm -hmm. Then I was going through some that didn't catch my attention for any reason. I think I read the description of Suicide Noted. This sounds interesting. Then I listened to a few Mm -hmm. in a row. Begs the question why, you probably know where this is going. Why did you put those words into that thing? When I found the podcast, I was alone. I was um, doing a temporary job up north and I was on my own. I was not doing so well. Um, I was feeling lonely. I was with a lot of people who were so much more experienced than me and, you know, so much better their jobs than me that I just thought, I'm not good. I don't think I'm ever going to be good. And then, you know, the suicide thing starts coming back to my mind because for some reason I default for that. Like, oh, I have a tiny problem. I'm going to kill myself. Say I do this a lot and they say it's called catastrophizing. Oh, yeah. I I don't know if that's the right word in this situation, but... You know, it's not just like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, something happens, I'm I'm not okay, yeah, I'm going to kill myself. It's been years of yeah. putting up with stuff that, that isn't good, <laughs> putting up with my feelings, because I'm, I'm my own worst enemy. I think I would say for the past maybe three years, about the time I started noticing that I default to that, instead of trying to find any other solution. Yeah, the def- the, that's the default. Or it became yeah. the default. I want to hear about all of that. And as much as you know, you're cool with sharing it. Uh, a, a one question I have before then is, so you find it, you listen. Why do you want to then reach out and say like, hey, I, I might want to talk about it? Because that's really different for a lot of people. Yeah. I've never talked about it with anyone that was not a mental health professional, I guess. It's one of the things that I don't even have the words to say, but like it bothers me that I'm not able to talk about the things that happened to me like everyone else does. You know how some people will be like, oh my God, I had a really shitty day at work and oh, and that's fine. People get to complain about their lives, but sure. I, I don't get to talk about me being suicidal because people get uncomfortable with that. One of the episodes that I listened to, I think it was Georgia. In England. Yeah. And I actually reached out to her and she replied to me, which was really nice. And it really resonated with me because she's so young and the things that she said just made sense to me. And I thought, I can do that. I I can talk about my things too. Speak in truth. Yeah. So I I wanted to talk about it, I guess. So here we are. Your husband's in the other room watching football. What are you? football does your husband know and i think i know the answer here because you just said i've only talked to mental health professionals about this that i'm imagining you're cohabitating and hopefully even in love that um sorry to be weird um you're talking to somebody who knows very little about love i know a lot about suicide i know shit about love don't worry but given that information you probably know 
something about his wife struggling, but you've never talked to him about that thing so much. Well, he's the one that got me to the hospital and everything. So obviously he knows, mm -hmm. but we've never really talked about it. Like, why did you do that? And actually talked about it. We, we never did. I mean, he knows me. He knows. Even though he took you to the hospital, I'm not pointing any fingers here or blaming at all. It's more of a, like a, oh, this is not uncommon, whether it's a spouse, a mother, or a friend, you'll take someone to the hospital, you know, maybe what they did or were close to doing, but then you don't talk about it much. It's always tricky for me because it's so not, you know, I'm the guy with the podcast. So obviously I'm cool with, I don't know if it was my wife though. I don't know how I would respond. That's really hard. Yeah. And you know what? Up until this very moment, I never thought about talking about it with Ooh, him. Interesting. In that way. No, I just now thought about it, thought about the possibility of doing that. Oh, why not then? Do you know? Yeah. Why not? Why not did you before though? Do you know? No, I don't know. You'd said earlier that why don't you get to talk about it the way other people get to talk about their lives if they're not talking about suicide, but suicide's dealt with differently. So I'd imagine. In my experience, that having spoken to people, it doesn't take you that many times of trying to do that or even hint at it before it's very clear, nah, I don't, I prefer we didn't talk about this. So you learn. Yeah. I just don't know. I never thought about it before. You've only talked to mental health professional, spoken to, talking to, yeah. spoken to mental health professionals. So that includes not speaking to other people in your life that may include family or friends or coworkers or people at wherever? No, not really. There's one friend who I told what happened, but didn't go into any details. And we talked about it a little and, you know, she was very supportive and caring, but never really discussed it. And family, they, they have no idea. It's one of the things that I think about with respect to when you're in the company of somebody who's struggling. It is case by case, right? You might ask somebody about it and they might flip out at you. That's certainly a possibility. But I think it's a little bit of a slippery slope or a dangerous slope to just rely on the person who's struggling to share openly. Like it's a dance. I mean, the main idea being here that like ask them, be nice about it and walk away if they don't want to talk about it. Sure. But most of the time, I think you can ask them. Yeah. So when you're growing up in Brazil, do you recall the first time where you started to think, hmm, why am I feeling like I don't want to be here sometimes? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I was 15. 20 years ago. Yep, exactly. Do you have any idea what was going on? I think at that age, a lot goes on that confuses us. But I had just moved from my hometown to a different place. I was born and lived in the capital of, um, not in the capital of Brazil, but Sao Paulo, the capital of Sao Paulo. At the age of 14, we moved to the countryside, a completely different beast to me because I was used to, you know, the big city, all of a sudden, this tiny place where everybody knows everybody and everyone talks about everyone else's lives. And I got really overwhelmed by that. And also at that time, my mom got pregnant with my sisters, twins. And although I absolutely love my sisters. They are the love of my life. At the time, I was very upset. Um, and I felt like I was being replaced. Just, you know, struggling to make friends, struggling to understand the lifestyle of those people. And I felt really lonely. I just felt really, really lonely. And it's the first time I remember 
acknowledging that feeling of being just completely alone, even though there were people around me, right? My parents, my, uh, there were, I, I mean, I made some friends, but I felt really lonely. And I, I don't know exactly why. That was the first time that I really noticed this. And you started contemplating? I don't know if it was like a plan or if it was me being a teenager. Well, um, you could be a teenager and still plan to go to a bridge and jump off one day. I thought about it a lot. I really did. A lot more than I think a healthy 15-year-old probably does. What I did once that is still a little bit weird and hurtful to think about, I don't know. This I definitely never told anybody. So here it goes. First time ever coming out of my mind. I went to a supermarket and I stood in the like cleaning supply aisle, staring at rat poison, wondering if if I bought that, if that was going to kill me. I remember, I, I can clearly see myself standing there, staring at it for like, I don't know how long. It felt like forever. It was probably not that long, but just thinking, will it, will it, will it? And then at the end, I remember I thought it probably won't. So I need to find something else. But I don't have any recollection of having thought of something else. Right. You know, I wonder, and some people will hear this and say like, wow, that's unnecessarily dark direction you're going, Sean. But this part of the conversation. What if you had determined in that moment, oh, that's going to work? Do you buy it? Do you? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Do you, do you ingest it? Do you try, you know? Because I think about the differences of like living and not living. Sometimes they're small. I think the biggest one I hear on here is somebody happened to come home. That's sometimes the difference. Yeah. And it also kind of freaks me. It's like weird to me that 20 years later, somehow our paths crossed here talking about this. That's so unlikely. It's crazy. It's crazy. When you leave the supermarket and you're 15 and you're living in the countryside, do the thoughts continue? Yeah, they do. When I get to university... And that's, you know, that's about three, four years later. Things kind of changed where I started to feel like, yeah, I I think things might actually be okay. I think me having made peace with my mom having had other children, which is, it just sounds so stupid and silly. But for me, it was a big deal. I mean, just, you know, figuring out that my sisters are amazing. I love having sisters. It's great. They're twins. It's like, Having dolls, but they're alive. Are you more like an aunt, sister, mom? Sister, sister. Like we we fight. Um, we're not in the same country, but yeah, we fight. We talk about boys. We talk about you know going drinking and stuff. But yeah, I think that was one big thing that made me. You know what? It's it's fine. I'm fine until about my mid twenties when I started living the grown up life. I guess you know mm-hmm. going to work. Coming back home, at that point, I was living on my own. I went back to the city, was working this job that I didn't really like, but it paid well. And I had that idea of, okay, it pays well. So that's a good thing. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep going to this job that I don't like and that is killing me inside. But it pays well. It gives me a bit of status. So I'm going to keep doing it. That's about when I got diagnosed with depression. That's the second time I remember falling into this really dark place where I didn't want to live anymore. Was the theme going from 15 to the mid-20s, 
when you got diagnosed, was it the lonely thing throughout? Was that like the ongoing wait? I don't know. I mean, the lonely thing kind of stayed with me up until when I went to university, I think. Okay. When I was about 18. At university, I started feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm fine. And then you go out of university. I had a gap year. I went uh, to Europe and it was fun. Not as much as I had thought, but it was fun. Went back and started doing what grownups do. Right, and right, that's right. when I got diagnosed. How did you know to even go to a doctor to then diagnose you? What prompted you to go to a doctor who realized you were depressed? I don't remember who. I want to say maybe my brother, because I also have a younger brother, probably told my mom, I think, or someone in the family. He said, whoa, he came and spent a few days in the city with me. And he was like, whoa, she's she's like really stressed out and she's very irritable and she has zero patience. And she's like, she flips out for the tiniest thing. And it's it's insane. Like he told someone and I, I think it was my mom, but I don't really remember. Maybe it was my auntie. And he was like, I'm, I'm so, so surprised. She definitely has something going on. And that's when I realized, whoa, people can see that I'm not okay. Because I felt not okay, but I didn't know that it was coming out. And I thought, maybe I need to get this checked out. That, that's a different thing, isn't it? Feeling crummy and then realizing, oh, other people can sense what's going on. So after you get diagnosed with depression, do you take meds? Do you go to treatment? Do you try to do something else? Yeah, um, they put me on the meds. And for some reason, I thought that was so distressing that mm -hmm. I was going on the meds. What? And I remember the first time I went to get it from the, what do you call it? A drugstore or a chemist? Pharmacy. Pharmacy. Uh, yeah, I went to the pharmacy. I was waiting for the lady to prepare it for me. Yeah. And I just started crying, bawling my eyes out, just full on sobbing because I was buying meds. Yeah. And I don't know why. It just felt like, what is happening to me? It was really scary. But I mean, it takes a while for it to work and for you to adjust to it. So for a few weeks at the time, my boyfriend, my husband, but at the time, my boyfriend started staying with me at my apartment. I think if he wasn't there, maybe, maybe I would have done something because I thought about it all the time. You did? Yeah. What stopped you? I don't know. I think just literally him being there. Yeah. Always there. His eyes on me, like hawk. So do you think he had a sense or he just was there as a boyfriend and being a boyfriend? No, he, he was there because of it. Yeah. We didn't live together at the time. He ended up moving in. And when you would think about it, would you think about other ways other than rat poison? Oh, lots of things went through my mind at that time. I yeah. thought of popping all of the meds, slashing my wrist. I think that's a common one that comes to mind most often. For some reason, there was this one time when I thought, what if I drink rubbing alcohol? It's the thing, my, my brain just works in a way where it goes like, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? And then you're yeah. going to be fucked up. I don't know. I don't know if it works. I don't know. Then I just don't do it. So you are in your mid-20s. You're on medication. Your boyfriend's living with you. You're still struggling. And I know that was about 10-ish or so years ago. I know yeah. in that time, you got married. You moved to England from Brazil, which I'm sure was rather difficult on your family. I'm just guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do what you got to do. Throughout that entire time from mid-20s to mid-30s, still thinking about it regularly, once in a while, never? Yeah. Um, since around that time, it just never went away the way it did when I was 15, like 
And for a while, it went away. But for the past 10 years, I've just been living with it. Do you think you were born that way? I don't know. I wonder the same thing. Was I born that way? Is it due to genetics? I don't know. Is it? I, I don't know. to figure out. I don't even know if we can. You know, they ask the nature nurture question or who knows what it might be, right? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I wonder, is it the way I was brought up? which was a little bit fucked up. And, and then that, that's a really tough conversation to have with your parents who brought you up. Yeah. Because they probably tried. Oh, they tried their best. Yeah, they were just really young. Oh, they were young. What was fucked up about it other than they were young? Yeah, they were young, like 19 when I was born. So they really had no idea what they were doing. Literally, zero clue. Yeah. They maybe never had very understanding parents. So that was their parenting style. I think one of the things I realized now is that I was a very lonely child. Mm. I was never taken seriously, I guess. That's one of the things that I can identify. Still cannot identify much that has affected me, but that's one of the things I can. I was not taken seriously. Like my emotions were not taken seriously. Did you ever tell them any of that? Kind of. I once in a fight with my dad, I kind of threw it on him like, ah, you didn't know how to be a dad and you fucked me up. And he was really upset with reason. My mom tried to talk to me about that sometimes because she knows, she knows she fucked up a little bit. Every now and then she'll be like, oh, I just want you to know that I did the best I could with what I had yeah. and I really love you and don't hold on to the things that don't serve you because I didn't know any better. Yeah, she tries. I mean, she knows now. It's hard, isn't it? Very hard. So bring us to, you've moved to England and you actually had an attempt, right? Yeah, 2019. What was happening or how, however you want to frame it that led to that? And then you'll share as much as you want about the actual attempt. We do talk about it. So, Well, I got married, which was great. And I was really happy. So that was one of my happy moments, you know, just enjoying having gotten married. Then we moved very soon after we got married, like about a month after we got married. And then uh, the fact that I moved to a different country was already kind of hard. It was really hard because <laughs> you don't know anyone. You don't know anything. You, you're trying to figure things out, even the smallest things like how do I pay my bills in this country, mm -hmm. right? I, I yeah. didn't know. It's, it's different. So that was tough. I think the thing that really took a toll on me is that when I got here and I applied for my residency, the home office deals with the immigration things. They lost my documents. They just lost it. And it left me for one entire year unable to do anything. Couldn't even get a library card because I had no documents. I couldn't work, couldn't apply for a bank account. I couldn't leave the country because I had no password to get back in. And that was really tough because I spent all day, every day alone at home. While my husband went to work and it was tough financially because we were on his salary alone, which was not very good at the time. So like I couldn't even go out to kind of, you know, let some steam off. It was it was hard. Imagine just being it's like being confined to, I don't know, a hospital, I guess. Oh, I'm sure. And when you're moving to somewhere new, you have hopes of how life is going to be. It's all like the opposite now. Yeah. And that situation eventually got figured out after a year. They found my documents, legalized everything, made up for it. Then, uh, yay, I've got my documents. I started working. I realized very quickly that I struggle a lot with corporate culture. 
And it's not just here in the UK, it was the same in Brazil as well. And for some reason, this work situation just really, really affects me very heavily. So my first job here was not cool. People were not cool. It was my first job in the UK and people were like, oh, but do you do you know how to spell my name? My name is David. I was like, yeah, I know how to spell David. Oh yeah, because English is not your first language. So are you sure you can spell David? Yeah, yeah, I can fucking spell David, <laughs> right? So there was a lot of that going on. It wasn't great. So I decided to change jobs. Found a job that was better. I made friends in that job who are still my friends. And that was back in 2017, but they're still my friends. It was nice, but it was a temporary assignment. No hopes of being extended. And then the thing that led up to the attempt happened, mm -hmm. which was I got a job that I thought was my dream job. What kind of job? At the time I was working as a HR assistant. I got a job at L'Oreal within their luxury division, within brands like Yves Saint Laurent and um, Lancôme and what else, George Armani, the really fancy stuff. And I was like, that's amazing. I love it. I love it so much. And I, I used to love makeup. Like I used to do really nice makeup looks and I liked it. But at the same time, I have always been a very, I, I want to say simple person. I don't know if that translates. Like, I don't dress up a lot. I don't do a lot to my hair. I mostly did makeup for fun, not because I wanted to look, you know, perfect or anything. Mm -hmm. And then I got there to the luxury division at L'Oreal. And I found myself dealing with people who treated the workplace as a catwalk, who really valued looks over everything else. And that was literally almost killed me. Like, there was no dress code. So it wasn't like, oh, you have to dress corporate. There was no dress code. The code was you dress however you want. So I did. And for me, that's like, you know, a pair of jeans, my trainers. And I realized that people did dress up a lot to go to work. So I started doing that as well because I felt out of place. And then I realized that people wore full faces of makeup every day <laughs> and like hairdos and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I have I have to be like that. I have, I have every to do day. that. Every, every day. Every day. Like, give me a break. I At that time, I lived in London, but not in central London. So I had to take the tube for about an hour. Mm -hmm. And I had to wake up earlier to get all dressed up. And that started fucking with my head so bad. And also because people would make comments like, oh, what are you wearing today? Why are you wearing that? What have you done to your hair? And like nothing. I haven't done anything to my hair. Well, exactly. Like nothing to do with your job. No, I'm, I'm pretty nothing sure do I was doing a very good job. And it was so disheartening. If I had a chocolate after lunch, for example, they would be like, oh, my God, are you eating a chocolate? Do you know how many calories that has? I was like, yeah, fuck you. I, I don't care. I just yeah. want to eat my chocolate. That was really tough. Every single day, things were like that. And at one point, I don't know if I started to kind of distance myself a little bit from that or if they started actively leaving me out. But at one point, I was being left out entirely yeah. from everything, like right. team lunches, they used to have team breakfast every week, maybe every couple of weeks. I'm not sure. Uh, so this just wasn't a few people that didn't like you. This is like a boss because a team lunch is run by somebody. It's like the entire team, people talking. And then when I get close, they stop, stop talking and then just look at each other and be like, you know, giving this weird smiles. And then, you know, they were talking about you. I and would just, not be able to last an hour in that environment. 
that that was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I don't know how I I lasted almost a year there. Well, six months after the attempt and a few more months after that I thought I could do it. But I just remember when it was getting close to Christmas and, you know, no sunlight. I already had all of that. I, I get the seasonal depression thing as well as the regular depression and everything just coming together. And I remember every single day when it was time for my lunch break, I thought to myself, is today the day I'm going to go to the train station and jump in front of a train every single day? Didn't tell people about it? No. Not your therapist? Not at the time. I wasn't in therapy at the time. Do you think if you had been in therapy, you would have told your therapist? Good question. I don't know if I would. Maybe no. I wouldn't because I, I was really decided that that was going to happen at some point. Right. But that speaks to even a larger question of if you're wanting to do something and you talk about it, there's this underpinning always of don't do it as opposed to, and this will rub some people the wrong way, I know, but like you just, okay, you can just talk about it. I can understand why people would say, no, 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 no. I can also understand why somebody wouldn't want to talk about it in that case, right? Like why? I did not want to be alive anymore. Now, before you do it, and I feel like we're getting really close to that day, did you actually ever come close, like when you're standing on the subway platform or the train platform? It's funny because it's very hazy. I, I don't always remember what I was doing because I remember my lunch breaks I used to spend like wandering around. It was a fight in my head, a mixture of trying to talk myself into it and trying to talk myself out of it mm -hmm. at the same time. And I know I went to the station at least once and just kind of looked, you know, just washed it for a few minutes. But yeah, no, I, I obviously didn't do it. I'm here. That's what I did for lunch break during that time. So when you talk about 2019, what are we referring to? Is that that series of coming very close? Yeah. So that uh, this, this whole thing that I just told you was end of 2018. And then it was January 2019 that I, I did it. What happened that day? I went to work. I had a miserable time. And I knew I didn't want to stay alive. I was going back home. I was walking. I had just gotten off the tube station and I had to cross a little bridge to get to my home. And I was crossing the bridge when I got a text from my husband saying, hey, I'm going to stay late at work today. Don't wait for me. And immediately, immediately, I was like, okay, that's it. That's my chance. It's going to be now. Went home, crossed the bridge. My first plan was I had been stacking, um, stacking is that a word? I was keeping the pills. I was like saving them. My meds and some head because I, I'm both an old soul and an old body. Apparently I suffer from sciatica. So I had had a crisis very recently and I had a lot of very strong medication that I saved. I soldiered through the pain so I could save them. I, I'm not quite sure how my husband kind of caught on to that and he hid all of my meds. So he would give me my meds every day in the morning mm. and hide them somewhere I couldn't find them. So when I got home, I searched the entire flat, high and low. There's only so many places it could be. He kept it in the car. I had no idea. You know now. I know now. But yeah, I couldn't find them. Couldn't find them. I was so desperate. So desperate. I desperately wanted them. I went to our cupboard, like full of things that are not used on a daily basis. You know, I don't know how to call that. We had a mini chainsaw and I tried to cut my wrist with that, but that was blunt. It didn't do anything. Hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. <laughs> when you say chainsaw, 
but it was a tiny one. It wasn't big at all. So you tried to cut your wrists with that. Yeah, but it did was you... dull because okay. it had been used on the Christmas tree. Did you bleed it all or was it that dull you didn't? Not from that. I then went into the kitchen and got um, a big knife. I bled from that, yeah. but it, it didn't do much because it was also not very sharp. And I remember I, I thought, I was like, this stupid thing, it's it's blunt, it won't do anything. And I just kept trying and mm -hmm. it just wouldn't, it wouldn't do anything more than like superficial scratches. That's when he got home, it was like, didn't have to work late after all. And he said? I, I don't remember what he said exactly. At some point, I remember he was just like, stay calm. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then he was on the phone, probably talking to the emergency services, mm -hmm. I think. So I was still trying to find things that I could use to cut my wrist. Like I, I tried scissors. So he was trying to keep me and he was on the phone and was trying to like physically hold me so I wouldn't do anything. And I was still looking for things. It was wild. You know how you'd said earlier about how things compound over time, right? Like the whole work thing. Did you keep that to yourself? I complained about work, but yeah. I think it was more in a kind of, I hate my work kind of way, yeah. you know, like, oh, I don't think I ever really expressed how unhappy it was making me because also I thought it was my dream job. So mm -hmm. I was having a hard time accepting that it was not good for me. Sure. So I imagine at some point it takes you to a hospital. Uh, yeah, spent a good few hours there. Saw a lot of people and then they let me go back home. I don't know how the health system works over where you are, but what they did was they gave me a choice of either staying there and, and being sent to psych ward or something like that. Okay. Or kind of something along the lines of promise to be good and we'll let you go home. Okay. But a mental health professional would come and see me every other day. At okay. my home. Kind of like that, yeah. Yeah. I think, oh, actually, I think they came to see me every day for the first week and then every other day and then a couple of times a week until they didn't come anymore. And that was that. And that was that. And, Nobody, and you didn't talk about it much after that? No, no. The NHS, which is the national health thing here, the, mm -hmm. mental, the NHS mental health professional came to me at home and I would talk to them and it was boring and I didn't like it. They got me into therapy which was a bit shit, to be honest. Half an hour, just, you know, 30 minutes of talking to someone who yeah. talks to how many people in a day, right? Right. And doesn't care about any of them. Eventually, I got into a private thing. I don't recall the name. Anyways, I started seeing a therapist privately. And you told him or her? Yeah, I told her. Yeah. How'd she respond? She okay? Yeah, I think she's been trained. She was good. She was okay. Uh, she helped me cope with the aftermath okay kept seeing her for a couple of years well i stayed alive not without its bumps along the way but yeah when you're here yeah there are only two people in the world that are not medical professional that know about your attempt one is in the house with you right now and the other's on zoom with you right now yeah and there's a friend oh there's a friend but she doesn't know exactly what happened like she doesn't know the details do you want to tell people I'm here. I want yeah, to tell the story. Yeah. But, but I'm kind of a stranger. Yeah. And the people that will hear this, they don't know you. In that time since then, you've been coping and you're here. Do you still think about it? Yeah. And there were a few times when I 
I don't know if it's considered attempt or not, but like I, there were a few times where I would loop about around my neck and hang it over the door and see if it would work. But I would always stop. And I did it a few times, including very recently, mm. like last week. For some reason, I just don't do it all the way. So You said you don't know why you stop, but I actually think you probably do know why you don't do it. Yeah, I guess. I guess different times I don't really want to do it. A lot of people say, and some people have told me, mental health professionals have told me, like, I don't think you want to die. I think you just want your life as it is to end, but that doesn't mean your life to end. Right. And I've, I know I've seen this uh, somewhere like online and people told me that. And I guess that's probably the thing, you know, I, I maybe I don't want to die. But maybe I just want this situation that I'm in to not be anymore. Yeah, it's tricky though, because you're not talking so much of an external situation. It's internal. Yeah. You can sometimes change external. Yeah. And you, but internal can be harder. I mean, you're on meds, right? Yeah. You can always see a new doctor. You can always try a new coping mechanism. But, you know, 20 years later, it's, yeah, it's challenging. It is because it's, it's me who has to live with me and I don't like me. Yeah, it gets really tense sometimes, yeah. like my my own struggles with myself. And I think most of the times when I think, oh, yeah, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to kill myself. It's just like nothing really happened, but it's more the way I respond to things that make me think, just look at you not being a functional adult. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be okay. You're never going to be able to handle things so why don't you just end it that's what goes through my mind you know i'm like i'm I'm never really gonna be able to be normal why am i trying not that this makes any difference i'm not suggesting it does i feel that way all the time yeah i'm sorry no i mean this is really just me thinking about me but like do you keep trying or you just somehow accept that right this is it my dreams are never going to come true. You know, I don't know. I fucking, for me, I'm like constantly going back and forth. It's tricky. So last week you put a belt around your neck. Yep. Some point before then, though not that long ago, you searched for suicide in a podcast platform. Here we are. Do you ever wish your husband didn't come home that night and you were able to find something that was sharper? Yeah. And that was 2019. Yeah. Purple and pill question, because the two things that I think people think about, probably not the only things, of course, want to make sure it works, because what if it doesn't? And also, I think, and I don't know if this is you, like, I don't want to be in a tremendous amount of pain. So the pink and purple pill, get rid of those two obstacles. The pink and purple pill, it's one pill, it just happens to be pink and purple, and it's that color, because I just wanted it to be that color. Cool. Tonight, I give you that pill, you are in no pain, it works, and let me add one other thing. Even though I may not need to, I don't know. Nobody knows it's a suicide. You just went to sleep, you got unlucky, and the universe or God decided it's your time. Do you take the pill? Yeah. That was not even a pause there from Natalia. No, if if it was that easy. If it was that easy, yes. If it was that easy, yeah. Does anything help you feel better that gets you through the day or makes you feel a little less shitty? What's been getting me through the day is uh, rereading Harry Potter lately. Nice. Yeah, just getting that, you know, oh. I know I already know what happens, but I want to read it. I want to keep reading and find out what happens. Harry Potter, man. Whatever works, right? Yeah. I I do wish that I had the courage to do some hardcore drugs. I often wish that I was like, I, I think I wish I was like a junkie or something that, you know, just, just oblivious, right? Yep. 
and and, and not talking shit about junkies. I yeah. I actually think that they need a lot of compassion. Why did I go to uni and got a job and tried to be a functional functioning adult? I could have just done that. Yeah, you probably yeah. could have done that. It's not a lasting career. For most, it's not a lasting career. Correct. You know, I always I always half joke, but it's not really a joke. I tell people because I've done some hard drugs and I and I got through it, whatever. But um, I never did heroin or anything in that family of drugs. And I t- I've told people like that will be the end for me because I know what's going to happen when I do that drug and how I'm going to feel. And I just know me well enough to know I'm not coming back. And I'm not saying that to be like dramatic here. I am not fucking yeah. coming back from that. So I still drink some. I don't really do much else. Yeah, stay the fuck away from that thing, man. Do you think you're going to try to end your life again? I think I probably will try again. Okay. I'll leave that at that. Are there any myths or misconceptions you would like to dispel or say that's not true? I think. I don't even know if it is true because I've never told anyone about it, right? But I think most people would think that it's just a, a way to get people's attention. And it's really not true. I I didn't want anyone's attention. I don't want anyone's attention. I, if I could do it quietly, fully hidden, mm-hmm. no one would know like, like the pill. I, I would do that. Do you think talking about it, and this isn't like a loaded question, whatever you have to say is great. Do you think this kind of conversation can actually make people move them towards ending their lives? I don't know if it will move them towards it. It's not my goal. Not why I'm here either. Right. But I think if you are in that mindset already, one thing or another could give you a push. But really, I don't think it, you you can't say it's because I listened to the podcast or because I read something or because something mm-hmm. t- someone told me about their experience. It's because you just you were looking for that one push and you decided yeah. that was going to be it. Yeah, it's complicated, I think. Yeah. My final question, and then I do want you to add anything else. How do you say suicide in Brazilian Portuguese? <laughs> Suicidio. Mm, I could have guessed that. All right. So um, when you leave, when we get off here, you're not going to tell your husband that, what you just did. If he asks, I might. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I didn't tell him before because I didn't want him to discourage me. Yeah. I, I don't think he would try to stop me, but maybe he would just express some concern. Do you think you'll let anyone know, husband, friend, family? I mean, they're probably not going to find it when it comes out. They're not going to be stumbling across a podcast called Suicide Noted, but will you let them know? I don't know if I will. Yeah. I may not. But people will Yeah, people will hear it. People who want to know more about suicide in a way, maybe not because they want to do it themselves, but because they want to know they're not alone. That's got to be part of it, right? Yeah. Or they might be suicidal. I I don't know. Yeah. Maybe someone will listen to you like you listen to Georgia and they'll reach out to you and say, hey, I really like your connected with it. Yeah. I just hope that people who listen to your podcast, not just my episode, just they're doing it because they don't want to feel like they're alone. Right. I do think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And I hope that it shows them that, you know, it's not, it's not just you, you're not broken. There's not something necessarily wrong with you. Lots of people go through that. They just don't talk about it. Right. It's got to be late there. Yeah. It's a three past midnight, four past midnight. 
weirdly honored that I am in a very small group of human beings who are willing to talk to about this stuff, even though I know it's a kind of unique and bizarre almost dynamic. I, I appreciate it. Is the way you run the podcast that made me feel like I could talk to you? Because I think one of the things that really made me feel like I'm going to do this and send you the message. Because I remember I sent you a voice message because I was scared that I would type and then not send it. So I sent you a voice message mm -hmm. instead. Mm -hmm. um, it's that you don't shy away from it. You just fucking say it. You know, yeah. there, there's not, oh, the S word. No, it's suicide. It's, it's what we're talking about. And yeah. it happens and it's real and there's no shame in it. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, th yeah, thank you. And I think it would be really interesting and maybe helpful if somehow more people could just talk about it like they would a football match. Not that the yeah. same stakes, I get it, but just we're having a conversation and you're just dogging. You know? Yeah, if we could talk about it and not have people be like, oh, for God's sake, well, you're going to go to hell. Whatever they say. And there's a lot of things. But I, I see that. I, I share that only because. That would actually help people not kill themselves. Being able to just talk about it kind of naturally. I know it's un maybe un unnatural feeling. You would actually help people. And even if they, even if five years later they did, maybe you'd feel, they'd feel a little less alone in that moment. Oh, fucking yeah. hell. How about that? And it makes a difference. Yeah. Well, you're helping to do that. So thank you. Thank you. All right, go back to your bow. That's B-E-A-U. I don't know if you know that word. Okay. I do. <laughs> yeah. You might not know how to spell David, but you know bow. Okay. I I knew how to spell David yeah, I know, back I know. then, and I do now. You know what's funny? As you were saying that, I thought, this is a very real thing that happened with a, someone named David. She remembers vividly. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. David. Yeah. David Whelan was his name. Oh, we're calling him out. <laughs> You know, yeah. if other people go through, he might listen to this. Oh, well. Well, if he is listening, you got me a bit of trauma, David. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor David. Yeah. Anyway, David, number one, most people know how to spell David. If your name was like Bartholomew, maybe some people would struggle. We got it, Bo. We got it. Yeah, we got it. We do. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you very right. much. Ciao for now. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Natalia in England across the pond. Thank you, Natalia. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. Check the show notes to learn about all kinds of other things. And help us out with a rating and or review on Apple or Spotify. And that is all for episode number 188. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.